You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. My name is Jamin Roller. I am uh, one of the lead pastors here at Citizens Church. And before we go into Genesis 3, I want to go back to uh, how we started talking about what this month would look like for us as a church. And, and really what it is, is it was the collision of, of two different things all at the same time. If you've been here, uh, if you were here last January, or if you have been here uh, in the last five years, what you know is during the month of January, our church, uh, even when it was a campus, historically talked about three or four different convictions we have uh, in January. And January just kind of uh, became the placeholder for us talking about things like uh, the, the importance for us to take the gospel of Jesus to those around us and around the world, which is what we talked about last week. It's been a placeholder for us talking about uh, things that are important to the people of God because they're important to God, like the sanctity of all, all human life from beginning at conception, from womb to tomb. It's been a placeholder for us talking about the importance of harmony among all those who bear the image of God, whether that's uh, harmony uh, and peace that crosses over race. Uh, Racial lines and class lines that God, uh, because of who he is and his love for, for people, would have his people contend for those kinds of things. And so we are in that month again. And what I really wanted to do uh, last week was kind of overlay on top of that who we uniquely are now as a church. We are now Citizens Church, have been a church for six months now. And, and I am just so, to say again what I said last week, I'm so filled with gratitude at the reality that six months in, we already are so much of what I had hoped to be uh, when we were dreaming and talking about the name and what that meant. Uh, but really what I want us to see in this month of January is that being about these issues... Uh, doubling down on these convictions is really what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. It means to be one of those who's been given the light of the gospel. They live in the kingdom of God's beloved son and look around the world and push back against the darkness that is the kingdom of sin. And so that's what we're doing. What that will mean next week is us talking about uh, harmony among people groups, whether that be harmony among class and color. This morning it means we will contend for life specifically confront the horror that is abortion, both in this country and around the world, and, conf and, and contend for the sanctity and dignity of life that begins at conception. So I, I need to say a few things, both of which are very important uh, for our conversation together. In saying these two things, I hope both of them are infused into everything that's said the next 30 minutes. Here's the first. We are not having a political conversation. Issues of life are theological before they are political. I'm not naive. I know that some of what will be said will impact potentially uh, or impact for sure how you engage politically in this country. I think that's really complex right now. I think it's growing more complex. But here's the reality. And to talk about the dignity of all human life uh, is to try and capture what's true about the heart of God. And, and here's why I have to say that. Because we live at a time now where when you start talking about what you believe around certain issues, um, people automatically try to categorize you and place you in a category that you may or may not belong in. I heard one pastor put it this way. He's talking to his congregation and he says this, if I tell you I care about babies in wombs, you think I'm Republican. Republican. 
If I tell you I care about poor people, you think I'm a Democrat. If I tell you that I care about veterans, you think I'm Republican. And if I tell you I care about immigrants or refugees, you think I'm a Democrat. I need you to hear this, friends. No political party gets to claim territory over the truths of God. No political party. Listen, they do not belong to, nor are they contained by political categories. You know what that means? As Christians, our allegiance is not to political categories. It's to kingdom values. And that means, my friends, that maybe, just maybe, our lives and our beliefs and our actions might not fit neatly into a political category, which might confuse friends and family and Facebook. But if you have to choose, may they be confused and God be honored and obeyed. Look, there's another reason why this, that particular point is important to me, and I just want to share some of my heart with you about what I'm observing, because I love you, and I love us, and I have hopes for us. The evangelical church, especially in the South, the evangelical church is becoming more and more politicized, and I just have no interest in participating in that. I pray that we, as individuals and in community, think biblically and thoughtfully about the responsibility we have as those who live in a democracy about how to engage politically. But I want you to know that when we enter into this space, it's not what God has entrusted us with. It's not the, the uh, burden that we have. And, and here's why it's so important. Because, friends, when the church becomes politicized, it becomes known to the surrounding world by what issues it supports and what issues it opposes. And when issues become what you are about, you almost always miss people, especially those who are different than you especially those who have different backgrounds and different stories and look different. And, and in missing people, I am missing so many of those who need the truth of the gospel just as much as I do. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we're not about conviction. I'm not saying that we're spineless. I'm not saying that we don't have beliefs. Like read our statement of faith. It's on the website. Listen to the way that we talk about God. Listen to the way that we preach the Bible. I'm not saying that we become so soft that no one is ever offended by us. I'm not saying we become so soft that no one is ever confronted or that no one ever rejects us. What I am saying is that we are so clear about what we believe and we are so clear about what is most important and we are so clear about who we worship that when and if the surrounding world rejects us, what they're rejecting is a clear picture of courageous Christianity, not some caricature that may or may not reflect Jesus. I care about that if you can't tell. <laughs> and then in some of that, I might need to go back through steps. I don't know. Um, <laughs> would you remember that this morning? I want you to remember that this morning. This is a theological conversation. And then more importantly, even than that, here's what I hope to contend for. Uh, I don't know. I don't know all the stories in the room. I don't. And so I don't know even the fact that I've said words like conception and abortion I don't know what that feels like for some of you. I don't know what that stirs up for some of you. So hear me. If, if I could just infuse a truth about God into everything that we're about to say, it's this truth. God is gentle. Jesus describes himself that way. He says, come to me, Jesus, who is God, who revealed God, who is the image of the invisible God. He says about himself, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know why I'll give you rest? Because I am gentle 
and lowly of heart, meaning whatever burden you bring, I will respond not by compounding burdens, but lifting them out of my gentleness. It's so important to the heart of God to highlight his gentleness that when you read the qualifications for elders in the New Testament, one of the qualifications is that they be men who are gentle. You know why? Because those who lead the church should reflect the heart of the head of the church, Jesus, who's gentle. A few years ago, I'm riding in the car with my family. We're headed down to Austin together to visit Carrie's parents. Carrie's my wife. At the time, our oldest was five. Our middle child was about three, and our youngest wasn't born yet. And we had these old uh, DVD players that we would travel with. And my oldest, Asher, asked if we could watch a movie. And we said, sure, let's watch a movie. And he said, can we watch The Prince of Egypt? You know that movie? It's the story of the Exodus and uh, it's got great soundtrack, Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston, if you remember. Anyway, so he said, can we watch The Prince of Egypt? And I'm like, sure, it's a Bible movie. Of course, you, we have to say yes, right? What could go wrong? So they start watching it. Well, Adeline's never seen it. She's also pretty young, and I had completely forgot the first scene of that movie. It's terrifying. Like, the very first scene is, like, soldiers and uh, violence and crocodiles, I think. And so Adeline starts sobbing. She is just terrified. She covers her eyes, but then like peeks because she don't want to, doesn't want to miss what's happening. And so she starts uh, freaking out. And my wife turns to try to reach the DVD player to turn it off, can't reach it. And so what she does is she says, baby, uh, don't worry. It's just pretend. It's not real. At which point my son, who's five, <laughs> goes, what? <laughs> it's not Pretend. Mom, it's in the Bible. It really happened. And when Carrie said it's pretend, Adeline had started to calm down. But then when Asher starts proclaiming truth, Addie just starts freaking out again, just starts sobbing even louder. And so my wife tries again. No, no, no. It's just a cartoon. Like, it's not real. Like, you're not going to get hurt is what she meant. And Asher's like, no, Mom, it really happened. And so I'm driving. And what's happening is uh, my son is shouting at his sister, uh, my daughter is sobbing. My wife doesn't believe the Bible. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. Right? So the whole thing kind of gets diffused in, in, in the conversation I had with Asher because he just didn't quite understand is, is just to say, hey, buddy, here, here's what you missed in that moment. What you said was true, and I'm so proud of you. What you missed in that moment is what your sister was actually going through. And I say all that to say this. Uh, I don't want to do that this morning. I don't want to shout truth in a way that misses people's pain. I don't want to shout truth in a way that misses the tears of my sisters and my brothers. No, God is gentle. And there's far too much of that, Christians. There's far too much of that from Christians shouting truth in a way that misses what people are actually going through. I'm not saying that the truth should be bought back. I'm saying the truth should always be infused with gentleness and empathy. And so hear me. I want to start with the gentleness of God by just highlighting that if something is said this morning that stirs up shame, brings up your past in some way, God is gentle, wants to deal gently with you. In Matthew 12, Jesus, what is said about Jesus is said, a bruised reed, he will not break. Isn't that beautiful? A bruised reed, like if you're coming with your bruises... Jesus is not going to add burdens onto the bruising. He's not going to turn the bruising into complete brokenness. He's gentle. Uh, there's a guy named Henry Nouwen. He's, uh, he's passed away. He was a Catholic theologian. He taught in Harvard's Divinity School, and he defines gentleness this way. He says, gentleness treads lightly, listens carefully, looks 
tenderly and touches with reverence. You see that in Jesus' life. There's nowhere that you see that more clearly than in John chapter 8. If you remember, a woman is caught in adultery. She's brought to Jesus, thrown at his feet. Men surround her with stones to take her life, and they ask Jesus what to do with her. And it's really a trap. They're using her as a pawn. And what you see from Jesus is a gentleness that says two things to her. Your life is valuable, and your sin is covered. He says, your life is valuable. He stands in between her and the stones and uses the truth to preserve her life. No matter what she's done, she deserves to live. And then he says to her, your sin is covered. When everyone leaves, he looks to her. He has a conversation with her. He takes condemnation for her that she might be freed, right? And so what does he do? He looks tenderly, speaks to her. He listens carefully, asks her questions. He looks tenderly at her, picks up her face, touches with reverence, lifts her up spiritually, metaphorically, emotionally to restore her to life. And Jesus, my friend, because I don't know the stories, Jesus, who is gentle, will interact with you in the very same way. Tell you your life is valuable. It has meaning. Look, what is so very tragic when we talk about babies in wombs having dignity, but then treat those who have had abortions as if they forfeited theirs. It's not true. It's not the heart of God. And then he would say that your sin is covered. If you've trusted Jesus, grace abounds to you. Listen, that if this morning we talk about some of the very things that you're guilty of in Jesus, you are not known by, defined by, judged by, condemned by your past, but you are one who has been freed by and cleansed by Jesus, who is gentle, who treads lightly with you, listens carefully to you, looks tenderly at you, and touches with reverence, especially the parts of your life that are filled with shame. He's gentle. Genesis 3, starting in verse 1, this passage will help us frame how we, as the people of God, interact in all issues where life is threatened, but especially this one. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. In Genesis 1, which is the beginning of the story, the whole story, you hear that God makes man in his image, makes woman in his image. And here's what that means as you see it in the story. It means that to have God's image is to have both value and vocation. Value, God looks over creation and he says this about them. He calls them very good. It's the only thing he made that gets that response from God, very good. But they are called very good before they've done anything, before they've validated their existence in any way, before they've performed good and bad. God said that you are very good because part of being made in God's image means that before you do anything spectacular, 
before you do anything worthwhile, before you do anything that goes viral or that's postable, you are special and valuable and sacred simply because you're human, simply because you have the image of God. And it also means that there's a vocation, and the vocation is to be an image bearer. The vocation is to to live in God's good creation in a way that reflects God's glory back to him as we cultivate creation and as we interact with creation. And then what you see is God introduces something into the world, the perfect created order. He introduces limits. Hear this, that God places rules in his world before it's broken by sin. That God interjects and infuses into his world these limits that are so important. So two things. We don't have time. The, the, the rule is don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't have time to go into all of it, but at least see this, that God's rules are always for our good because they're coming from the heart of a God who is good. You've seen glimpses of this if you are a parent, right? Uh, Friday morning, my son, who's eight, he said, Dad, I'm hungry. Can I have a snack? And I said, sure, bud. What do you want? He said, how about Lay's potato chips? I'm like, no, it's... <laughs> It's nine in the morning. This isn't college. You can't have Lay's potato chips at nine in the morning. He goes, okay, fine. Um, what about a candy cane? And I'm like, no, you can't have a, it's nine in the morning. You can't have a candy cane. I, also, I ate all of them last night. We don't have any more candy canes, right? But, but here's the thing. That's just a trite example of the fact that our home is filled with limits. But if you look at those limits, you look at those rules, hopefully you can trace those back to the hopes we have for our kids which are imperfect, but hopefully we're being faithful. If that's true for us as imperfect parents, how much more true for God that he gives this rule? And and let me tell you how this rule, how this limit that he places into his brand new world, how it functions. It's so important to see. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is a limit given, a rule given to maintain the distinction between God and humanity that they might never believe that to bear God's image is the same as being God. So God's saying to them, look, you have my image, you are not me. You have value, but you're not me. You are invited by him into his work, but not him. So would you see this? The, The climate that God establishes, the world that he establishes is People, men and women, uh, are image bearers, meaning they have value and vocation, and they live out that purpose within the limits that God has laid over their life. And you know what that leads to? To be an image bearer, to have value and purpose, to live within the limits, the God-given limits that he's placed in his It leads to freedom, naked and unashamed is how they're described. It's not just a physical reality, it's a spiritual reality and an emotional reality. To be naked and unashamed means there is nothing about myself I'm trying to hide from the world around me, and there is nothing about the world around me that I am trying to hide from. How free are they? And then hear me. What does the enemy go after? The limits. What does he come in and do? He sells a distorted view of freedom. The accuser, the king of the kingdom of darkness comes in and where God had established that freedom is the right limits from the right voice so that you see God and self in the right way, the enemy comes in and distorts that. He offers the same thing that God offers, but then offers a different way of arriving there. Says freedom is actually in being unlimited. 
Freedom, if you, can, if you can remove, if you can cross over the distinction between you and God, then you will be truly free. If you have the freedom to choose however you want to choose and can't be told that those choices are wrong, then you will find freedom because freedom is actually the absence of limits. That's the distortion. That's the lie. And then what they find is it's a false fantasy just immediately you see the tragedy that they have welcomed into their life because to cross over God-given limits, to pursue a limitless life is not to become God, it's actually to become less human. To be human is to be naked and unashamed. And what you see from them is, is the consequence is that they are now broken images and instead of naked and unashamed, they hide. And you know what hiding is? The opposite of freedom. Hiding is to be a slave to fear. And so they came by that slavery by buying into the lie that freedom is crossing over the God-given limits. And where they ended up is enslaved, enslaved to their own sin. And so would you see this? That distorted view of freedom, that lie, always, always, always leads to the destruction of life. It always leads to diminishing and devaluing and ultimately destruction of life. Like the, the climate of Adam and Eve's relationship change, where he was saying, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. After sin enters the world, when he's in hiding, he says, the woman that you gave me, there's already, he, you already see the value of his wife diminish in his eyes because he bought into the lie of a distorted view of freedom. And then the very next thing in the Bible is you have murder in the nuclear family. You have a brother killing another brother. Abel gave more. He sacrificed more. What Abel did was he uh, pursued a freedom that narrowed his life around what mattered most, and Cain didn't do that. And Cain looks at Abel and says, my life would be less limited my life would be more free if I crossed over this boundary and I get rid of my brother and he destroys God's image because the distorted view of freedom, like the, the idea of freedom that's defined by no limits and no rules, it leads to the destruction of life always because nothing challenges my pursuit of that version of freedom like people and like the people around me. And so from this moment on, you see this chronic attack on the image of God in the pursuit of that lie. You see a chronic attack on the image of God in pursuit of freedom, and it is, it is always the most vulnerable and weak and defenseless in society that catch the brunt of that attack. You don't even have to look at the story of the Bible to see that that's true. Just look at the story of history to see that that's true. And God is not inactive or silent or apathetic. God responds with these two movements from Genesis 3 to today. He's responding to that with these two movements. And here they are. He confronts the lie and he contends for life. Confronts the lie and contends for life. You see it. We looked at it last year in the story of Hagar who was uh, cast out of a family, who was treated as dispensable by a family. And God confronts the lie. She's not dispensable. She has my image. He provides a well for her and contends for her life. Not only that, what you see God do is you see God task his people to be about the same two movements. 
You see God task his people, command of his people, that they be the kind of people that confront the lie and contend for life. They confront and they contend. If you read the Old Testament, there are so many rules that God gives to his people um, to protect the groups of people that society considers dispensable. Widows, orphans, poor, refugee. And he says, confront the lie. They're not dispensable. Contend for their life. Give to them of your portion. Welcome them into your home and into your city. And then Jesus enters the story. And Jesus, he doesn't just confront the lie and contend for life. Jesus reverses the curse of the lie. And what you see in his life is in the, if the garden is this distorted view of freedom that ignores God's limits, Jesus, as God, volunteers for limits, the limits of flesh, the limits of humanity, the limits of death. He sacrifices himself to contend for not just life, but eternal life. Life completely restored, completely put back together. And so we are the people that live on this side of the cross. We are the people that belong to a long history of the movement of God, both confronting and contending in our role, our responsibility. God-given responsibility is to look around the world where we live. Where do we see the distortion? Where are we invited by God to confront and contend? In this country... Every 30 seconds, a child is killed in their mother's womb. I've been preaching for 25 minutes, and since the sermon started, 50 babies have died in their mother's womb. Our service will be about 75 minutes. On average, it's about 75 minutes. If it goes 75 minutes this morning, 150 children will be killed in the time that we gathered for worship. If things don't change, when we gather here January of 2021, the second Sunday in January, to talk about the sanctity of life, another million babies will have died. It is the leading cause of death in America. The moment of conception, a baby begins to develop. You know this. You've seen this. You've heard this. The moment of conception, the baby begins to develop. Four weeks after conception, the heart begins to form. Six weeks after conception, the heart begins to beat. All of your hearts right now are beating, I hope. And in all of your hearts beating, here's what you know to be true. The very first time the heart that you feel beating right now beat was in your mother's womb. And the large majority of abortions happen in that time or after that time. And in the time it took me to explain all of that in the last two sentences, two more beating or developing hearts were stopped in the name of freedom. Choice. And what we can't escape is we can't escape that because of that distortion, it puts us as a people caught in these contradictions. Like, do you ever feel that? Just the contradiction? Like we live in a society where people will gather around a woman and grieve a miscarriage, and in that same society, gather around a woman and celebrate an abortion. It's distorted. So confusing. We live in a society like I don't understand how the video that goes viral when the ninth grader with Down syndrome, when he's playing football and he gets to score his first touchdown. And the video goes viral because both teams watch and cheer and the crowd erupts and that video gets posted with thousands of likes and thousands of cheers and shares. And where are the cheering crowds when he is in the womb? And just under 70% of babies with Down syndrome are aborted just in this country. 
In other countries, the whole population of those with Down syndrome is about to be extinct because the percentages are higher, like more like 95 to 98. It's confusing, and it's distorted, and it's heartbreaking, and it's devastating, and we are the people that confront the lie. And I simply want to do that before you this morning. I want to confront the lie as it is uh, celebrated publicly, as the rhetoric that drives the issue publicly. A child... A child, every child is formed by God. Every child's life is appointed by God. And to care for that child is to embrace limits. To care for that child is to embrace God-given limits to time and God-given limits to money and God-given limits to my plans and my dreams. And it's to sacrifice for that child. Would you hear me? Here's, Here's the confrontation of the lie. To take that life to avoid those limits in the name of choice and freedom is to play God and to participate in evil as old as sin itself. Maybe I could illustrate it this way. That lie, that distortion, it really produces two different kinds of life. And I want to juxtapose two different kinds of life before you. Michelle Williams uh, made what sounded like a pro-abortion speech when she won a Golden Globe a week ago. If you don't know Michelle Williams, she's an actress. She's a wonderful actress, super gifted, super talented, was incredible in Greatest Showman, even better in Dawson's Creek a while back. (laughs) She won a Best Actress Award. And in her acceptance speech, when she received it, she made some comments. And and here's how I understood her comments. She didn't actually say the word abortion. But how I understood her her comments uh, is that she, in accepting the speech, said, I would not be where I am without the choices I've made, including the choices uh, to have an abortion or abortions. And my heart was just grieved. Because you could hear the lie, right? My heart was just grieved. My heart wasn't incensed to rage to get out my phone and try to fix the problem on Twitter, right? That's empty. My heart was just grieved, like, and more where, where I was drawn is I wish I could just have a conversation. And if I could talk to her, if that's what she meant, and if I could talk to her and just plead with her and just say, my friend, that award doesn't compare to a child. That award doesn't compare to a child. That award, that award can't run to you when she scrapes her knees. That award can't shock you with her wit and charm and humor. That award will never try your patience and steal your heart all at the same time. That award uh, won't call you when she goes to college. That award's not going to wow you on her wedding day. That award for sure will not hold you as you age. Look, A child, a human, even if it never does any of those things, even if it's just sacrifice, even if it's just limits, it's sacred. And listen, like people are more important than things. People are more important than what we go on to do or achieve or accomplish. And in the award, you may see your image, but in a child, you would have seen God's. And ultimately, the truth is, So many are living for the wrong ceremony, living for the wrong moment where all of their efforts are seen and validated and celebrated. Like, I wish I could just tell her about my mom. In 1993, a couple, young couple, with very little money, were told by a doctor that they were about to have a child that was born with a very severe birth defect. And he said, what do you want to do? And they said, what do you mean, what do we want to do? 
And he said, well, it's going to be very expensive. It's going to cost you money you don't have. We've seen your insurance. And it's going to be a drain on your time. And it's going to change things for you. We're not sure what the quality of life's going to be. So what do you want to do? You have options. And that young couple said, no, we don't. No, we don't. They confronted the lie and contended for life. And in 1993, my mom and dad said yes to my little brother who was born with spina bifida. And it would embarrass them to know that I'm talking about them right now, but they don't attend here, and they definitely don't listen to my sermons. So, <laughs> which is hurtful, honestly. <laughs> but they said yes, and their life has been filled with limits ever since. And I think especially for my mom, how her life has been so limited God-given limits, because God's in control of all of her circumstances. And I think, you know, she's probably missed out on some awards. Maybe, I don't know, maybe she's missed out on an invite to some ceremony that would celebrate all of these accomplishments that she's had in life. And maybe that's true, but here's what's even more true than that. There's a ceremony coming where the God of the universe who cares about his image sits in the audience and he exalts her and honors her and he welcomes her to stage and says, well done, like I saw all of it. I saw all the nights that you woke up in the middle of the night. I saw all the times when you had to stay home and everyone else got to leave. I saw all the sacrifice. I saw all the limits. Every moment you cared gently like I care for you. And none of it was wasted. None of it was wasted. And he will say that to her. And she sacrificed at great cost to herself and continues to do so because she's living for the ceremony where the God of the universe says, well done. Well done. Do you see the lie? Do you see the lie confronted? And do you see the life's juxtaposed? Like on one hand... Um, one is distorted freedom, life destroyed for achievement that won't last or be remembered. And on the other hand, it is sacrifice of self, life preserved, obedience that will never be forgotten. And that's true. And so listen, the lie that we're confronting is that life is dispensable. It's not. The lie that we're confronting is that I have to sacrifice life to really live, and it is the self-sacrifice on behalf of others that makes us truly alive. That's what's true. So we are the people, when it comes to this issue, that, that confront the lie, and we are also the people that contend for life, and here's where I want to be so clear, because what matters most to us as the people of God is that when we contend for life, we do so in a way that's holistic and not compartmentalized. What I mean is contending for life in a way that fights for the life of the child and the mom. I could end right now. I could pray right now. We could sing right now. And what I have said would be true. But my fear is that we've only had the conversation in a way that misses people and misses a huge part of what's really going on. Because if we are going to engage in contending for life beyond just posts and beyond just polls, it means talking about more than babies. Here's the reality. What we know is that almost half of abortions had in this country are had by women who live below the poverty line. So it is very real fear for survival that leads so many to the clinics. And look, it does not make the decision righteous, but it is so often a devastating decision made out of devastating circumstances. And I just can't help but wonder how many would choose differently if surrounding them were Christians already contending for their life. 
How many would choose differently if in the devastating circumstances there were Christians and what they knew about those Christians is they will enter into this with me and contend for more than just the baby in my womb, but will contend for my life and the child's life. Look, and for many, it's not. Like, I don't, I don't want to caricature every story of abortion because for many, it's not. I just didn't want my life to be interrupted because I wanted to win the award one day. For many, it's, I was so scared. And he pressured me, or he never returned my calls, and I didn't know what to do. Or mom and dad pressured me, or I've never met mom and dad. And look, I didn't know what to do. I was just a child myself, and if I could do it again, knowing what I know now, and that's reality. To contend for life means to volunteer, to enter into those kinds of situations, to contend for every life involved, because every life is worth contending for. It's why the organizations that we have with us, the ones that we partner with, and the two that we have represented this morning that you saw on your way in, they are organizations that offer help to women. They are organizations that offer real, thoughtful, empowering help because their situations are complex, their need is great, and their life is worth contending for. It's why I'm so proud of and encouraged by our foster and adoption community here at Citizens. We have a large and growing community of families who have fostered and adopted or are fostering. I gave you some statistics during our 75-minute service of the darkness that will go on, and I want to show you how the darkness is being combated by the light because in our 75 minutes together, what is also true, if you just count the families that I know of, in our 75 minutes, we have over 30 adopted or fostered children running the halls of our church spilling Cheerios, learning about Jesus, singing worship songs. And it is the light that's pushing back the darkness because of families contending for life. And I want to share a story with you. Out of that community, there's just a very clear picture of contending. We have two families here, the Creels and the Petties, if you know them. And they are two families who have adopted two children. They've each adopted a child from the same young woman. She was first pregnant when she was 15, and her life has been un imaginably hard. Abuse, homelessness, both parents incarcerated. And last Sunday, both of those families, the Creels and the Petties, last Sunday, a week ago today, they went and got her and rescued her out of a really tough situation. And then they got her an apartment and they're furnishing that apartment. And I talked to Kristen this morning. She's one of the moms. And she said, you know, what we're really trying to do is just start a whole new life for her. Do you hear that? The contending for life. And I heard about it and I texted I text Manny, one of the dads last night. And I just said, hey, here's what we're talking about tomorrow. Can I just ask our people to help? And he goes, we would love that because we need more money and we need more furniture and we need help helping this woman. And he texts back and he said, do you think they'll help? And I said, well, the 11.15 will for sure. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about the nine. But. but what a faithful, true, gentle picture of Christian engagement in such a complex issue. It just, in the best way, just smells of the grace and gentleness of God. And that's what I hope. I hope those multiply here. And, and I know that even in describing that, I've missed so many of you who are involved and engaged in those kinds of ways. But here's what I want to do. I'm going to pray. Before I pray, I want to come back to this. God is gentle. And I want to come back to that in two ways. That what if, my friends, 
God being gentle, especially as it relates to us confronting the lie, contending for life, what if that, what if God's gentleness, what if that word was the adjective that marked what people think about when they think of Christians? How much better would we be doing if it was, okay, the, the Christian and, and, and connected to Christian at the mention, not that we can control how everyone understands or doesn't understand, but what if it just became generally true that to hear the word Christian, you would think, oh, gentle, like God is gentle. And what a beautiful world that would be. What a, what a faithful picture of what it means to be a citizen. And so I say that to just say this, may it start with us. May it start with us. May it start here in Collin County, right here in Plano. And what that means for all of us is taking an honest look at our lives and confronting the lie in our own lives. The lie that would diminish and devalue people in pursuit of our own freedoms or in pursuit of being unlimited to be these people. If we actually are going to become this together or better yet, continue to be this together, it means honesty and repentance and humility. And then lastly, this, I just would shudder at the thought that one of you is sitting here and you feel like I shouted truth over your tears. Jesus, sweet friend, is gentle with you. Like part of what has made me so anxious, if I can use that word about talking about this this morning to you, is that reality that I just don't know all the stories. And because I don't know all the stories, there's a wrestle of missing pain and missing nuance and missing context because I just don't know all the stories. But here's what is better than that. There is one who does. Knows every detail every thought, every regret, and has, has been with you in this last 40 minutes, the whole time present in that. His name's Jesus. He knows. He won't break what is bruised. He treads lightly and listens carefully and looks tenderly and touches with reverence to restore your life. Because your life, no matter what you've done, is worth contending for. God, we love you. And we thank you for your mercy and your grace. And if there's just one thing that rings true and reverberates around the room, may it be your heart, O oh God. May it be your kindness, O oh God. For the woman, for the man, God, that just what this has been for them for so long is just this barrier of shame that they believe they are just destined to hide behind and be oppressed by the rest of their life, would you lift the barrier? Knowing that on the other side is grace, a gentle Savior who does not add to the bruises of people, but he heals them. We love you, Lord. I pray that it would be true about us that when we stand here in 2021, and talk about this, I pray a few things. I pray that abortion would be gone forever. Would you do it, God, in your power and your might? And I pray that the rallying cry behind it ending is not legislation, even though that's good and right and you can use it, God. I pray the rallying cry behind it ending is the people of God were truthful and gentle and engaged at great cost to themselves because life is worth contending for. May we, when we gather a year from now in 2021, may what marks us, what is said about us, what we believe about us and strive to be together as gentle people. We love you and thank you. Let me pray. Amen.